Well, today, what we're going to do, we're going we're gonna to just break from Romans today. Um, I, I've been kind of rethinking, uh, I want to bring the most clarity possible to Romans 9, 10, and 11, because there's so much confusion around those chapters. And I'm really excited. I, I started seeing like a common thread, and I just kept rereading them over and over again. Having taught through Romans, this is my fourth time teaching through it. Um, I, what I saw was a common theme of, of mercy, God's mercy that often gets overlooked because of the difficult passages around the relationship of God's covenant with Israel, how does that fit into the gospel, questions around election and predestination, all those things can really blur what is the central theme of what Paul's getting at. And so I'm kind of reframing it and I'm gonna jump back into that next week, but um, I was away in Laguna Beach uh, speaking for the Palau organization a couple weeks ago and as I had wrapped up um, the book, which hopefully will come out in August, uh, some real key things kind of came into focus for me around ministry and around Door of Hope and around some questions that are consistently asked of us. And one of those consistent questions that we continually ask by people that have been in the church for any length of time is, what is Door of Hope's position when it comes to discipleship? What does it actually mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Um, and how do we actually disciple people? The, the challenge with this question is, is that anyone that has grown up in the church uh, has come from a particular discipleship grid. And those grids vary. Uh, the first executive pastor that Door of Hope had worked for Campus Crusade for 35 years. Well, you can imagine what his discipleship grid was. It was the materials from Campus Crusade for Christ. They were great, but that's just a path. It's a, a means of helping people grow in maturity. I think one of the problems that we have when we talk about discipleship is that we don't actually take the time to establish what is the foundation that allows us to create a litmus test for what does it mean to be a disciple because the danger of discipleship when it is not properly anchored in the gospel is it quickly becomes a new kind of law. And that is the thing that I am most paranoid of, if you haven't picked up on that already, is what I am not interested in doing at Door of Hope is creating some sort of selective sanctification in which we give people a ladder that they're supposed to climb when they come in the doors. That's not what we want to do. But that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. <laughs> Um, and so I want to establish some of the paradoxes of sanctification, what really are the kind of the questions that we have to ask, because I'm all for spiritual disciplines, but if those disciplines aren't anchored in the centrality of the cross and flow out of a right understanding of grace, they will become an exhaustion for us as believers. And so I want to just begin with this, this passage. It's a key passage for Door of Hope, uh, and, it, and it's, it's important for us to understand the kind of upside-down principle of the kingdom of God. And it is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It's this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Once again, the message of the cross is foolishness. The cross of Christ, the reason that the cross is often the missing component in preaching today is because the cross is an embarrassment. It's a scandal. 
it, 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 it's so counterintuitive to how it is that we are taught to live in the modern age, which is all built around do this, this, and this, and you will be a fulfilled, satisfied human being. The cross basically stands in direct opposition to self-propelled fulfillment. It stands in direct opposition to all moralism, to all attempts at living an ethical life for the purpose of saving oneself. The cross basically stands as a wall against all human effort to achieve salvation for oneself. The other thing that the cross does is it actually puts all human beings, no matter where they come from, no matter what their social or economic or, or racial makeup is, it puts everyone on the same playing field. Evil people in need of a savior. I like it to say that Jesus basically breaks the world into two categories, evil people that say yes to him and evil people that say no to him. That's, we don't like to define evil that way. If I was to ask this room right now, how many of you see yourself as evil? Not many of you would raise your hands because we reserve evil for those words that sit, that for those people that sit outside of our comfort zone. Evil is what you would call a serial killer. Evil is what you would call a, a leader like Hitler. But evil isn't what would I would call my mom or my dad or my grandma or my grandpa or myself or my friends or um, my friends or coworkers, and they're not evil. I mean, they might not be good, but they're not evil. Well, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says to his own disciples, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And the greatest gift that God gives is the gift of himself as we meet him in Jesus. For there is no God behind the back of Jesus. And the cross is the great revelation of God's gracious movement toward an evil people. And yet he is merciful and he has pursued us and he is not, for whatever reason, content to exist without us. And that is a beautiful thing. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the center of the Christian life and the source of all power for all sanctification flows out of being anchored in the centrality of the gospel. And the center of the cross must be the center. It is the continual thing that we come back to again and again. We don't look through the cross. We don't move beyond it. We keep coming to it. And if you think of the cross almost like a city dump, it's a place where you leave your garbage. It's not a place where you collect it. Jesus tells us to come to him again and again. And, it, and we build upon this idea that without him we are lost. And so we never lose sight of the fact that the only thing that makes us a saint is that we are a sinner who has been forgiven. The cross is a continual reminder that we are sinners who have been forgiven. We are beggars telling other beggars where they can get some bread. The moment we move past the cross is the moment we begin to elevate ourselves above other people. And one thing that Door of Hope should not tolerate is the idea that I have arrived and I am the person who is best suited to be the spiritual authority in this person, this poor person's life. We are a people that show our maturity by our willingness to serve one another because we know how fundamentally lost we are without Jesus. So 
I like to refer to it as kind of, we have to begin with what I call confronting the dragon in the road. And in, in the difficulty of understanding the reality of mixture, as I call it, the law of mixture, that everything we do, even in the power of the Spirit, is still unfortunately tainted by this reality we call sin. Sin has infiltrated every arena of human existence. And as Martin Luther said, if Jesus saved me from sin, why didn't he save me from sinning? It is a problem that will follow you all the way to the grave. This is why the cross has to remain central. Otherwise, we would find ourselves in a place of despair. The cross is a continual reminder that Jesus has once and for all done something about sin. But that doesn't mean that we stop sinning. What we need to learn how to do is not sin less, but surrender more effectively. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But I think what it creates, the the difficulty of mixture and our willingness as Christians to admit it is actually what creates the facade that's so prevalent in the church today and the reason why so many are abandoning their faith. I think that, that a lot of what we see in the modern church is attempts by preachers to keep bored Christians interested. And I think it's really heartbreaking. It's why we end up going down all these rabbit trails of like selective sanctification because it's this idea, what I would call keeping up with the Christian Joneses. It's, it's, and let me just tell you, they don't exist. It's an attempt to present to the world an ideal that you yourself cannot keep. And I think until we understand that, we will never truly understand what sanctification or discipleship actually is. I was guilty of it before I was saved, and I still find myself guilty of it today. It's the attempt to create a list that makes me feel good about myself, that allows me to feel acceptable and to continue to hide. And this is the thing that we have to confront. This is the dragon in the road. It is a natural default setting. My wife caught me in this this week. It's this desire to present yourself in a particular light that makes yourself look better than you know you actually are, but you're too ashamed to actually be honest about what you actually are. And it's good when you have a spouse that can go, yeah, that's not, you know, you know you're, you're hiding right now. Dang it, woman. Quit shining light on my darkness. <laughs> you're removing my mystique. <laughs> Isn't that usually what we, that's, a, that's our sexy way of, of defining darkness. It's just mystique. <laughs> the heartbreaking factor is that when this goes unchecked amongst believers, what I believe it leads to is lovelessness and pride in the pulpit, judgment and exhaustion in the pew, scandal and damage in the church, and ineffectiveness in the world. And, you know, as... My dear friend David Zoll wrote in his deeply convicting book, Seculosity, people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they are failing to become. We don't want to add to that. And I think what what happens is our reluctance to address the reality of mixture, our reluctance to address the, the reality of sin in the world. Sin is becoming a word that is used less and less in the church, which is deeply disturbing to me. Uh, because, because it is understanding sin that we see how actually original grace is. But I think it, it leads us into one of three categories, and none of these are desirable. The first is the legalist. It's deny the existence of that mixture in yourself as best as possible under the guise of moralism to diminish its reality. 
I think this, the second category would be the libertine. Falsely believe freedom means you can do whatever you want without consequence to avoid its reality. <laughs> and then I think the third category is the apostate, which sadly I am seeing uh, more than I want to see amongst people that I love that I know met with the living Christ but are literally walking away from their faith altogether. And it's the abandon the whole faith experiment entirely as an attempt to deny its reality. All three, legalist, libertine, apostate, all are attempts at creating a way of thinking about existence to get away from the fact that we are so much worse than we like to admit. Now, the fact is, most of us, if not all of us, move between all three of these categories almost every day. Uh, and I think that it's due to the mixture that we find that. I can wake up so zealous by afternoon, be a hedonist, and then end my day as a practical atheist. This is an unfortunate reality that, that plays out of that, that sinful mixture, which is why we desperately need to understand the basic principles, the foundations by which all discipleship actually flows. And, and I'm not here to say that all is, um, is foolishness to even try. I'm here to say that if we understand what we are in light of the cross, we will actually begin to understand the principles to by which we can actually live the victorious Christian life now. My heart is that we enjoy heaven on the way to heaven. And the thing that makes heaven heaven is Jesus Christ being central. And I'm just going to borrow a lot from what I have learned from Luis Palau himself, who, who's key verse um, was, it is no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. But we can't declare that unless we understand these foundational concepts. We have to begin with the proper center. The cross is the center. But then here are the four principles that I want us to build all that we do around the idea of discipleship. When we come to, when we as a church talk about sanctification, these are the four principles that I think should be, um, that, that should be the foundation from which all of these conversations flow. The first principle is this, confession is the path to overcoming, not trying harder. Confession is the path to overcoming, not trying harder. Trying harder is the thing that our culture tells us to do. That is the thing that exhausts people. It's why people abandon the church because they feel like they can't do it or it creates pride. I am doing it, I have arrived. But 1 John 1.7 says, says beautifully this, here is the key to overcoming. But if we walk in the light, to walk in the light is to do what? To come out of hiding. What is confession? Confession is truth-telling, and truth-telling is the key to freedom. It's the ability to state a thing as it is. It's the ability to proclaim without shame and without fear our own brokenness to one another because we know that our God is in the business of forgiving. It's what we try to practice as elders. It's what we try to practice as staff. We had this beautiful staff um, uh, day this week on, on Tuesday. And one of the things that we are so committed to, both in the elder team and as a staff, is to radical honesty. Serious about truth-telling. About not hiding our crap and trying to pretend like we got our stuff together. 
But we are going to come out and open, and we are going to be honest about how we are broken, and we are going to find safe people to share our brokenness with, because I promise you, if you want to find victory in your life, you have to come out of hiding. The essence of sin, the essence of sin, when you go back to the garden, when our first parents took of the fruit that was forbidden, what were they essentially doing? It's not like there was magic in the fruit. At least I don't think that that's what was going on. I think that the picture that is given to us in the Garden of Eden is this, is that God is saying, I am the one who has the right to define what is right and what is wrong. By taking the fruit and eating of it, our first parents were saying, we will be our own gods and we will define for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. This is the essence of our culture today. But what was the outcome of that choice? That choice made a very good thing become not good. And that choice led immediately to, and they were naked and ashamed. And they did what? They hid. They hid themselves. They hid from God. Not only did they hide from God, but they become hidden from one another. And not only that, it also created a hiddenness from themselves. And I think that this is the essence of, of staying in the dark as individuals and as a community, both in our relationship with God as well as our relationship with one another and ourselves. The fact is, when we do not come into the light, when we do not confess our brokenness, what it does is it keeps us enslaved. I, I, I like this. This passage, I think, is really interesting. In Proverbs 28, 13, it says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Notice the forsaking of a transgression can't happen until it's confessed. As long as it stays in hiding, there is no real admittance that it's a problem. And I think that this is one of the beautiful things of where freedom is found. All good therapy, and there is good therapy. If you're one of those Christians that grew up in that evangelical world that, that lived with a, a deep skepticism of all psychology or psychiatry, that the idea that we don't need psychiatrists, what we need is to be good Christians. Let me just tell you that living in a broken world with broken bodies and broken minds means that there is good therapy. I don't, don't get me wrong. There is plenty of pop psychology out there. And there is plenty of ideas that are driven by keeping you staring so deeply at your navel that there is no ability to move forward. And it causes a shrinking of one's world rather than an increasing of, of a worldview. But when you have good therapy that actually helps you address brokenness that is stayed in the dark, like what I just did in Chicago with my wife, for, we did 18 hours, 16 to 18 hours of counseling in three days. And it was so intense and so rigorous, and most of it was dealing with childhood trauma. Like, I had to actually come to terms with the fact that I dealt with abandonment, I dealt with sexual abuse, I dealt with, with kind of every arena of trauma that can create all sorts of problems. And I thought that I escaped those things. I never need to talk about them. I don't need to address them because that's the past. But you can't escape the past if it's not dealt with. And it was the ability to speak it out to my wife and to a counselor in a safe setting that it finally, I finally found for the first time in my life just in a, a, some semblance of freedom 
from the trauma that I experienced as a kid because I wasn't even willing to really admit that it was trauma. In fact, I would just make jokes about it, self-deprecating humor, downplay its significance. But those things don't go anywhere. We have to be able to talk about them. And the place that we should be the safest in talking about our brokenness is here. And yet the church is often the place where people feel the most fear and often in their experience, experience the most judgment. When in actuality, I am far more skeptical of someone that pretends that they don't have any brokenness to talk about. (laughs) Because that's not the world we live in. And so confession is the path to overcoming. Overcoming is the goal of discipleship. We want to be overcomers. We don't want to be trapped by hidden sin. We want to find a freedom. And the freedom is, is that there is a God who has already forgiven you, but that forgiveness is not going to be appropriated until you come out of the darkness into the light. And it's more than just a confession of our sin. Confession is the path to overcoming, not trying harder, because the whole essence of the Christian faith is wrapped up with what we do with our mouths. It's fascinating. Sin leaves the body through the mouth. Salvation enters the soul through the mouth. Whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. Witness happens through the mouth. It's true that we should be known by what we do from word and in deed, but deeds mean nothing if there is no proclamation. We should be pointing people to what is the motivation of those deeds, which is Jesus. Now, it's true. Lots of people have been been pushed back on this idea. Well, people talk about Jesus, but their lives don't live up to what they're proclaiming. Show me where that's true. How many of you know tons of people that just talk about Jesus all the time, but their lives don't actually reflect Jesus at all? I don't really know that. Not in Portland, anyway. Maybe there's some places, but that's not the problem here. We are are a city of activism. Most non-Christians are more engaged in non-profit, humanitarian desires than, than, than Christians in this city. It doesn't make them Christian. In fact, all humanitarian efforts should be, for us, be deeply connected to the centrality of the cross because the fact is, is that nothing changes the the death rate. (laughs) Nothing changes the fact that sin is still the fundamental problem no matter how good life is or how easy we have it. So what we have to connect real life to is that Jesus is the answer to the world's dilemmas. And that is not a popular proclamation. Often our shame of the cross and the shame of Jesus is, is hidden behind our righteous activity. Our righteousness is Christ himself. There is no other righteousness. Our justice is wrapped up in being justified in him. And so I think that this is why confession is the key. Why do so many Christians become so deeply frustrated to the point where they walk away or abandon their faith altogether? I think it's probably because they didn't start in this place. They didn't come to an environment where honest confession was demanded, expected, and actually demonstrated. And I think that that what we find is that there's no victory and then people are like, why am I following Jesus? It's not even fun. There's nothing, there's nothing life-giving about what I'm doing here. 
And this is an important question. We have to ask ourselves, this is the hardest question. Do you live in such a way that actually creates in people a longing to have what you have? Do people sense something supernatural about your life? A supernatural awakening. Do you live with an, with an incredible love for the lost? You know, one of the things I, I saw in Luis, Luis never met a person that Jesus didn't love. It's the most beautiful quality a human being could have. He never met anyone that Jesus didn't love. And he treated each person with that absolute dignity. He never presented himself as one who's got it figured out, ever, never. He was, and he was sharp. Even at 85 years old, he remembered everybody's stinking name. I don't know how the guy did it. But part of it, I believe, is because he actually cared. I think that his memory aligned with his affection. We don't remember people's names because often the, the fact is that we just don't care that much. And, and we're, not, we're not concerned. We don't see things in terms of eternal weight that life is actually headed somewhere and that eternity hangs in the balance and that God has chosen the church to be the vehicle by which we proclaim there is a way. And the way isn't something we do, it's someone that we know. Confession is the path. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Notice, healing is actually wrapped up in confession. It's confession of need. It's confession of brokenness. It's proclamation that Jesus is Lord. These things bring the healing of the wounded healer into our lives. This is why we finish that verse in 1 John 1.70. says, if we walk in the light, that is, if we confess, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Notice, our fellowship with Christ directly corresponds to our fellowship with one another. This is why I fundamentally disagree with this new obsession with Christian mystics. Because the mystics, by nature, believed that it was possible to have full, rich intimacy with Jesus without connection with other people. Many of them. Not all of them, but many of them. Because I've read a lot of them. It was all about the, the personal experience of divine intimacy. And I love the emphasis on intimacy, which we'll get to. But intimacy with Jesus can never be at the expense of a rejection of people. For the whole reason Jesus keeps us on the planet is to be conduits of his love to one another. That's why Martin Buber says, you cannot look away from your neighbor without looking away from the face of God. And I think that that's why we need a practical mysticism. A practical mysticism is, a, is an intimacy that leads us into the world where our confession of our own brokenness makes people feel safe to be honest with us, our confession of Jesus means that we are presenting to those same people the means by which we are experiencing the peace that we say we have. And our confession is the means by which the world is to know that this Jesus actually loves them. So confession, if you want to know my idea of, of, of discipleship, uh, show me a discipleship without confession and I'll show you something that I would call minor heresy. 
Because I don't think you can have Christianity without real confession. I would actually stand that firmly on this principle. And maybe I'm wrong. I think scripture supports it. I'm pretty sure. Surrender is the road to holiness not being better. Surrender is the road to holiness not being better. Isn't it interesting that these phrases, try harder, be better, I mean, that's a joke in my family, like, because we, we care so deeply about grace. Um, it, it's the, the joke, you know, make a mistake and be like, come on, honey, do better, be better. But we know that it's a joke because that's kind of a joke. And, but we don't actually think it's a joke. It is something that we fundamentally have a really hard time escaping. We feel that we must try harder. We feel that we must be better because none of us are where we actually want to be. And it doesn't matter how far you get. It doesn't matter how old you are. There's always this sense that I'm coming up a little bit short. (laughs) It's, you know, there's a few people in the world that really don't seem to be aware of the fact that they're coming up short. But most of us, even the most raging, self-absorbed, narcissistic pagan, are not what they fully want to be. There is a frustration in human existence that one cannot escape. And I think that this is, this is something we must understand. But the key to holiness is not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you're like, I'm going to pray more. By the way, confession is always connected directly to prayer uh, and I, don't, don't get me wrong, when I'm laying out foundations, I'm not ignoring the actual disciplines of the need of the Holy Spirit, prayer, scripture, gathering together. I'm not talking about spiritual disciplines today. I'm talking about foundational concepts that are paradoxical that help put the disciplines in their proper place and allow them to be meaningful for us. So here, thank God, I was getting so hot and I just don't want to take my new jacket off. I really like this jacket a lot. It's vintage, it was super cheap, it's handmade. No one else has it, no one. And this is why I need to surrender more because when I'm really stressed out, I shop. Um, surrender's the road to holiness. We think of holiness as like when I pray more, when I read my Bible more, you know, when I, I swear less, when I struggle with lust less. When I do, the, so it's all about the negation of things and it's all about trying not, it's like my, my dad talking to me about smoking, and he's like, he goes, you know, I, he, he made some joke with me the other day when I talked to him a couple weeks ago. He's like, he goes, yeah, I tried stopping smoking. He's like, but the more I, I tried to not smoke, just the more I smoked, now I've embraced it, and I'm still alive, Joshua. And he's like, and I could still kick your A. And I'm like, you can't even freaking walk. What are you talking about, dude? And like, And he's like, he goes, you know what? Your old man's smoking three packs a day now. And he was like, it was like a, it was like a rite of passage. Like, and I'm like, you know what? I appreciate that honesty. Um, I, I think that this, the surrender is the road to holiness. And, and for my dad, I, I kept trying to tell him, and this is a concept he's slowly getting, is that it's not the surrender of this or that thing. It's the surrender of oneself. If you think about what sin is, 
in Scripture, it is the defining for yourself what is right and wrong. It's being your own God. Surrender, a biblical vision of surrender, is once again allowing Jesus' lordship over every arena in our lives. When it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, it's not talking about moral perfection. It's talking about a single-minded commitment to Christ. Jesus actually modeled for us what the spirit-filled life looks like. What blew people away when Jesus walked on this earth is that, that it's not so much that the world saw God, it's that they saw man as God intended man to be, totally surrendered to the Spirit. Jesus only did those things that pleased the Father. He lived the Spirit-filled life, the Spirit-controlled life. Do you know what it means to be Spirit-filled? We want to see more freedom in the Holy Spirit at Door of Hope, and I think it's something that we're beginning to see. I saw, like I saw People were getting charismatic with a seatbelt last Sunday. It was impressive. I mean, no one was running with flags, but there was a lot of hands raised. And I was like, whoa, door of hope. <laughs> we're getting out of control. Things are going crazy. <laughs> but, but the beauty of the spirit, a spirit-led expression of worship, that I remember that, that sense when, I've, when I first experienced the principle. For me, the revolution of my faith was when I really surrendered to Jesus when I stopped trying to use Jesus as a means to achieve what I wanted. And for me, it was a significant surrender. It was a significant denial. I get, this, is, this was a really hard one. I had this manager, and she was, she was really helpful, and she really believed in music. I had moved. I was now a believer, and I, I had this new project, and she's like, I really love the music. I want to I uh, represent you. My wife was not yet a believer, and she... Uh, worked with this guy, Robert Hayes, who managed um, Third Eye Blind and Smash Mouth. Remember those bands? And, uh, um, and then, I'm not saying, okay, I hate both those bands, but he was a significant manager. Um, and, uh, and, and she's like, he wants to manage with you. We, and we, they got me a showcase in L.A. with Keanu Reeves' band. That's a good one. You've never even knew he was in a band, and you shouldn't. Um, and he was a bass player. Uh, and, and I was like, I'm gonna, I got this thing. It's, everything's moving forward, and I'm painting a house, and I listened to a series of sermons on, on the good death, essentially. It was on Romans 1 through 5. And what I realized is that I've been a believer for a year, but I've actually never submitted anything. I've never surrendered my life. And I just said, Lord, what do you want from me? And I could feel it in the depths of my being. Darcy was so fed up with, with, she was like fed up with me before I became a Christian. Now I was a Christian and using Jesus as an excuse for my self-absorption. And I just could feel it. The Lord's like, you quit your band today. You let go of your manager. You don't go on the trip to LA and you go on a mission trip to Russia. Like all that, because I just had been offered this trip to Russia. My pastor's like, we'll pay for it. You come with us. I think it'll be really good for you. And I was like, I can't, I got a showcase in LA. And instead I went home. I remember breaking down in tears at this job, this place where I was painting. And I'm like, Lord, I'll, I'll do that. And I went home and it wasn't until I confessed, I confessed to Darcy. I said, Darcy, I have not been representing Jesus well. And I know you're, you don't even know where you stand with him, but I just want you to know, I, I'm, I'm so sorry for being self-centered and I want to be the husband that you need me to be. And so I'm going to quit my band today. And she couldn't even believe it. And I literally, I said, I, I mean it. And I 
literally turned around, I called each band member, I quit the band, I canceled the tour, and I said, I told her I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on this mission trip to Russia, I don't know what to expect from it. Um, and I let my manager go, and I just saw the other day, she's like, <laughs> she's, she's like now the head of publicity for like this whole record label and, and one of the main managers of, uh, of um, what's your name? Uh, who's, the, who's the biggest female pop singer in the world right now? Taylor Swift. She's the, she's the stinking manager of Taylor Swift. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me, Lord? Is this a joke? Is this a sick joke? <laughs> and I'm like, not that had I stayed with her, she walked into Taylor Swift's career. But it just is, it's a reminder, like, surrender is painful. Giving up our dreams, dying to our dreams, but it's allowing God to resurrect. If I had continued that path, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. But no, the Lord had a different plan. And, and I, I love what um, Pip shared, uh, something that, that a mentor shared with him that I, I really love. Plan B is always God's plan A. And, and we have to trust him, but one of the most challenging things, we don't understand that holiness is not us trying to live up to a standard we can't live to impress a God who already loves us and already knows that we're a mess. No, holiness is the surrender of one's broken self. It's what I tell my dad. Dad, Jesus isn't going to love you more because you stopped drinking. And even if you stopped drinking right now, it'd probably kill you. You can't. It wouldn't even be actually healthy. He's not interested in your alcohol or your cigarettes. He's interested in you. Give him your whole self, the good and the bad, the mixture, and let him do with it what he wills. This is the key to, to holiness. This is why Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. It is the surrender of the will. It's the death to the, to the lie that I am my I am the best master of my future, of my life. It's saying, Lord, I just want you to be king in every decision. And think about this. How does that surrender play out? How does that surrender play out? It plays out in, in the decisions we make. It plays out in, in how we spend our money. It plays out in how we serve and how we spend our time. But you see, too often we choose to serve rather than, we, rather than choosing to be servants. Because if you choose to serve, you're still in control of that decision. But actually taking the position of a servant requires a total surrender to the king. We, we give a little bit to God of our money, but in, ultimately we think, you know, I've done a good thing by giving, but in actuality you don't view everything you have as already belonging to him and that you're just a steward of it. All of these principles play out in a million ways. If you want holiness, holiness flows out of a surrendered will. This is one of the most beautiful principles I learned from observing Luis. He never claimed to be without sin. What he claimed to be was sold out for Jesus, surrendered to Jesus. Jesus' life working through me, a broken conduit vessel. In spite of me, he works through me. And the more surrendered we are, the more powerfully he will work through us. This is one of the beauties of what it means to be spirit-filled. Being filled with the spirit, it's something we're commanded to do. You can't, you can't control the spirit. The spirit is a third person in the Trinity. We surrender to the spirit. Being spirit-filled is not getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit having more control of you. 
being able to utilize you as a conduit of the grace of Jesus. And this is the beauty of the gospel, and this is why Paul calls it our spiritual worship or our logical service. It is a posture of daily surrender. This is why it's not about you being a a more moral person today. It's about you being a more surrendered person. I would much rather you be messy and, and raw and rough around the edges and sold out for Jesus than, than outwardly whitewashed when inwardly you're still a total rebel trying to control your own life. This is the key to understanding our sanctification and our discipleship. This, now you're beginning to understand why I get a little leery of methodologies that aren't anchored in the gospel. There's nothing wrong with them, but they have to have the right the right foundation. Number three, loving more is the key to fulfillment, not sinning less. In fact, when we love more, you will sin less. For love is the fulfillment of the law. I think that this is the problem is that we focus in on the negative, but it's like all of a sudden we think we're sinning less, but we actually aren't very loving. And nothing is more offensive to Jesus than a loveless people. Nothing. Jesus is not interested in your ability to read your Bible every day, pray every day, memorize scripture, do good deeds, do this and that, and yet you look at your brother and your sister with this idea that you are somehow better than them. I promise you that everything is negated without love. This is exactly what Paul said. He says, if I do not have love, I say nothing, I do nothing, and I am nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, the first, first six verses basically lays out that principle. He's like, I could, have, I could have all prophecy, all knowledge, I could speak in the tongues of angels and men, but if I have not love, it means nothing. He goes, I could literally be burned in a fire as a martyr, but if it's not driven by love, it literally profits me nothing. It is nothing. It's actually an impediment. This is why the most dangerous place we can exist as Christians is close to the truth without knowing it. It's the sitting in the pew, doing all the right things without knowing the right person. It's the, it's the danger of a loveless Christianity. And sadly, one of the things that is tolerated more fully and robustly in the church today is pride. Pride in the pulpit, pride in the pew. I've seen it again and again. I've been responsible for it. I've, I've, been, I've been one who's, who's unfortunately come to the pain of being at the hands of it. It's something we have to fight because pride ultimately is the essence of all sin. And yet we are so drawn to charisma and power and authority that pride is one of those sins. We're like, we will not tolerate sexual sin. We can't, we can't, we can't tolerate anything like that. We're not going to, you know, those, that's evil. And yet we have pride again and again. And it's just like, do we not understand that, that pride always comes before the, before the fall? How many leaders do we have to see fall? How many brothers and sisters do we have to see crumble under, 
under a, a false humility and an actually exaggerated pride. Love is the key to our fulfillment. And if we want to actually sin less, in fact, I would argue that the more you try to focus in on conquering individual sins, I, that's why I don't actually, I, I loathe, I actually loathe the, um, and I'm, I'm grateful for the Puritans, but I actually loathe the language of the mortification of the flesh. I loathe that language. It's like, it, it just, it's, it, it just reeks of try harder, be better, do, do more. And it's like, no wonder the Puritans were known for never smiling. Like, because, because there, was a, there was a system driven by, if you do these things, you are acceptable before God. But that's, that's the problem. It doesn't matter whether, it doesn't, it's the whole history of the church. It's actually the history of humanity. We, by nature, create systems by which we make ourselves feel all right in the world. And the cross kind of strips us naked of those things. And that's why we can't, there, that's why I don't adhere to any tribe. And I know that word is supposedly not acceptable anymore, but I, that's dumb. I don't, I don't adhere to any particular theological grid, I like, except for the grid of orthodoxy, because I've never come across any particular stream, whether it's Baptist or Presbyterian or, you know, uh, any of the reform streams or charismatic streams or Catholic or orthodox. I think that it's the umbrella of orthodoxy and what we say about Jesus and those, and those realities. I'm, I just want to be biblical and I want to be a Christian. I don't want to be identified as anything but a Christian. I don't even really like using the, the phrase Christ follower because I feel like it's, a, it's an attempt to try to make us not sound weird by calling ourselves Christians. But if you call yourself a Christ follower to a non-Christian, they're just going to ask you if you're a Christian. You know that, right? So, like, you're not actually achieving anything by saying that. Um, <laughs> it's sort of like, this, you're like, wait, you mean a Christian? You're like, yeah, but I don't say that, because, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I think that this is, this is the key. Is like, the question is, is, like, does the theological grid that you particularly hold to actually produce more love? Or does it produce more judgment? I also think it's always important to ask the question is what does the theological grid do to the character of God? Are we committed to a biblical vision of God? Because if you're committed to Bible more than, than systematics, and there is a difference, uh, systematics attempts to put all scripture into a particular system. And often you have to do gymnastics around particular verses to make everything fit into that system because nothing's that tidy. The fact is, is the Bible is full of tension and paradox and you have to deal with that. But what I will not tolerate is anything that violates the nature of God as God has revealed himself to us through scripture. And I think God's goodness can never be, can never be questioned uh, if we are to actually live a life that is loving. We can't say that God hates a lot of people and then actually, what do you do then with Scripture when Jesus says, love your enemy? So we don't, we don't get to hate our enemy. Only God gets, no, no, God, God only commands that which is true of himself. He's a God who pursues that which is evil. He's a God who pursues that which is sinful and broken. He is determined to make our problem his problem and he has done something about it. This is the beauty of the gospel and it produces in me a love and this is why it says, for the love of Christ controls us. Notice, if you want to be controlled by something, be spirit controlled. 
spirit-led, love-controlled. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Notice, the love that compels Paul is a love that directly corresponds to a right understanding of the cross and the gospel. That one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. We go right back to the surrender principle. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Loving more is the key to fulfillment, not sinning less. If we're not a church that loves well, confesses well, surrenders well, we're missing the mark. Finally, in closing, knowing is the goal of existence, not arriving. And and I want to just state that because I feel like so often, if you look at the self-help industry, it's all, it all derives from this end goal. Self, self-understanding, self-fulfillment, self-empowerment, all of these ideas. But the, the, the fact is, is that the essence of the Christian life, there is, show me anywhere in the Bible that tells us where, where the arrival is. The arrival always seems to be connected to arriving at an awareness that God is in this place and I didn't know it. And that Jesus tells us again and again that the most important thing is that not what we do or what we know, but who we know. He says, many will come to me in the last days and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Do many signs and wonders in your name. And Jesus does not deny that they did all of these amazing things in his name. And he says this, away from me, you wicked I never knew you. I don't know you. And I cannot think of a more terrifying thing to have the Son of God who died for humanity look us in the face and say, away from me, I never knew you. Saying, you, you and I were not friends. I was available to you intimately, but you turned your faith into a ladder to climb, and I am the ladder, and you missed it. You don't know me. The only thing that can separate us from God is a rejection of his love, his grace, his rule. It's not, you're not separated by God because you said a bad word or had a dirty thought. Because you're going to say bad words and have dirty thoughts probably every day. The question is, what do you do with them? The question is, what do you do with yourself? And the thing that I do is just simply say, Lord, I'm a mess, but I trust that you're bigger than my mess. And I'm a mess, but I'm still your mess. <laughs> and he's like, I can handle that. What I can't handle is you refusing to let me have your mess. And I think that this is the thing. It's, it's knowing. It's do you know the God that you say you believe in? Because nothing compels people toward the faith like meeting someone that really seems to know Jesus. You know, there's the story of Luis at the very end of his life, and, the, and right the, up to the a week, two weeks before he died, nurses and, and, and people in, in the hospital were trying to get into his room. In fact, one doctor shared with Andrew and Kevin that he, he found a nurse weeping um, in a back room, and, and they went up to her and asked what was wrong, and she said, I was just talking with this man. She didn't even know who he was. And he, and he told me that Jesus loved me and that he wanted me to go to heaven with him. 
and she's like, I just, I've never had anyone talk to me like that. And I love Luis. He's like, like, darling, I want you to go to heaven with me. Not yet, but someday I want you to be there with me. Um, but he, he just, he had that infectiousness. When he preached here, how many of you guys were here for Luis preaching on Good Friday? So a bunch of you were here. When he preached here, we had over, I think it was like 1,200 people crammed into this space. And Luis gave illustrations that no preacher could ever get away with, ever. He's like, there's an airplane, it's going to two, or train going to two destinations, and they both start with H. I just want you to go to the one called heaven. <laughs> I'm like, like any other preacher said that, they'd be like, that's crazy. Like, who says that? And people were like, that's right, Luis. And he's like, who wants Jesus? And all these hands raised. And it's like, how did, what, how did that even happen? Illustrations were like, like, I'm like, it was like dad jokes. And somehow the charm was so, you know what it was? It was like he wasn't, he wasn't being overly academic. He, wasn't, he didn't talk about Christian principles and feeling like you need to understand every aspect of sanctification and what salvation entails and what is atonement and how does that actually work. And he, he wasn't interested in that because he trusts that only the spirit of God can actually save a person. And he believes what scripture says. If Jesus be lifted up, I will draw people to myself. He actually believes in the miracle of salvation. And because of that, so many people got saved. Because he just said, how many of you are broken and lost and you want, you want to be found and you want to experience real life? Then put your faith in Jesus. And people came forward and experienced it. And it was a lot of people in Portland. Educated, smart Portland. Getting illustrations about a train that goes to heaven and hell. And all these people come to faith. Because it was a man who actually knows the God that he proclaimed. And I think that this is the thing for us. Jesus himself said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Remember what Jesus said to Philip? Philip, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I love Paul's own words. He's like, his deepest desire, he goes in Philippians, that I may know him, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fullness of his death. I want to know him. And I think that this is what we have to understand is that if I was to ask you anything, if there's anything you gathered out of Door of Hope, I don't actually care what your discipleship process is. The thing I'm most concerned with is do you actually know Jesus? And if you can't say yes to that question, then we have to ask, do we understand our foundation? What is it that you put your faith in then as a Christian? If you don't know him. Because a person that knows him knows that on their worst day, he's crazy about him. Our assurance flows out of knowing him, not out of doing more for him. And anyone that comes into Door of Hope and claims to have arrived, I'm sorry, you're at the wrong church. Because none of us have arrived. And I don't think we'll ever arrive. Because even eternity is going to be a perpetual place of growth and increasing in our movement of intimacy with him, we'll never come to an end of discovering the depths of who God is and who each other are. We have so many people to know. It's gonna be awesome, heaven's gonna be awesome. Even people you don't like, you won't even have to hang out with them because there'll be so many other people to know. <laughs> I, I, I keep a list, I'm like, Lord, do I have to hang out with that person? He's like, you know, you keep asking them, that's gonna be your, your, your roommate. 
<laughs> eternal roommate. <laughs> Actually, the worst thing God could do to any of you is make me your eternal roommate. <laughs> I promise, ask my wife. She, would agree. she was just like, I'm so glad we're not married in heaven. What a gift. What a gift. She's never said that. <laughs> Jesus is good. The goal is knowing. The key is loving more. The road to holiness is surrender. And the path to overcoming is confession. We want to be a church that puts a high premium on confession and surrender and loving and knowing because we are a church that keeps the cross at the center. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And we do pray that we would begin to see those pinpoints of grace all around us. That we would understand that there is progress. There is a real progress for the believer. But it's not this linear line that starts on the ground and ends in the heavens. It's, it's, it's all kinds of stumbling and crawling and getting off the path and you being the good shepherd and leading us back. And it's, it's about missteps and, and backtracking even. You call it, your scripture calls it backsliding. Lord, we just want to be a people that recognize that all that needs to be done has been done in you. And that is the source of all power, all fulfillment, all progress. And we just want to know you, Lord. And I just pray for everyone in this room, anyone that doesn't know you, you said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. And I think that this is the question we must ask. Lord, it's a question I've been asking. Do I know you? How easy it is after preaching and leading a church for so long to just fall into the trappings of, of just rote memory and just doing the same thing over and over without taking a moment to recognize that the God that we're talking about isn't a God that isn't here, but one who is present. That we haven't come to learn about you, we've come to meet with you. And I pray that Door of Hope would continue to be a church that comes in, in, in with an expectation to meet with a God who really does love us. And I pray for anyone in this room that feels lost right now, that feels broken in their sin, that recognizes that they cannot save themselves. Lord, I pray that the Spirit reveals the truth that you, Jesus, are the Son of God, that you are the God-man, and that you who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, that on the cross of Calvary you died the death that we deserve, but death could not hold you. For we're told on the third day you rose again, revealing yourself to your followers before ascending to the right hand of the Father and sending your Spirit to embody men and women, boys and girls who put their faith in you. Lord, it's not about trying harder. It's about trusting you with our whole life and knowing you and walking in intimacy with you. Help us to know you, Jesus. And we proclaim together the very words of Scripture that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. So let's say that together, church. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen.